Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, what happens when your toaster's just not cooking anymore? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson. As always, I'm here with my good friend, Pete Wright. Getting divorced and becoming a co-parent leads to a whole new set of rules around your relationship. Issues you agreed on as a married partner will inevitably become contentious as feelings change and opinions evolve. How do you face these issues as you're learning that you and your former spouse are no longer in agreement? Are there any issues that just don't have a middle ground? Lisa Ziderman is managing partner of Miller Ziderman LLP based in New York. She's a matrimonial attorney, CFL, and certified divorce financial analyst. And among her publications, she's the author of the blog, Legal Matters, Understanding Mental Health Issues as They Apply to Divorce and Child Custody on Psychology Today. Lisa, welcome to the toaster. Thanks so much, Seth and Pete. Glad to be here. Well, we're grateful to have you here. It's this the, the conversation that we want to have today, and your experience is quite broad uh, in terms of, of dealing with these issues. We have sort of a cornucopia of things we could we could pick your brain on. But today, we really want to focus on what happens leading up to and after divorce to ourselves, our brains, maybe our behaviors. What is it about divorce that drives people to to feel like their former spouse is a completely different person than they once were when they were married? I think that people change over time. And I think that they are influenced by different factors, such as friends, family, work, all of those parts of, of people. And I think people grow and change. And at some point, they may grow apart. And their views, both about children, about marriage, politically, change. And maybe they aren't the same people, essentially, that they were when they got married. And I, I think that that's really what you're asking in terms of how does that happen? I think it just happens naturally. Well, I, I, you know, this the, this comes up a lot as somebody who is who is not divorced, but uh, you know, I know many divorced people. They're, my friends come to me and they say, you know, this this person, my my former spouse, I can't speak to her anymore. Her, she is now married. Uh, you know, I'm I. We used to be a liberal couple, and we used to vote Democrat. And she's now married to ex convicts, and uh, she is a complete ideological odds with everything we used to believe like two years ago. This this happened very quickly. And uh, I, I start thinking, what is it that's causing this sort of of whiplash kind of identity change after a divorce? And of course, that leads to, I have to imagine, greater contention in the, the divorce and post-divorce process. What is how how do you see that play out in your experience? Well, look, I, I do see that people have varying opinions, particularly when they're going through a divorce and particularly about children as they're going through a divorce. There might be some very basic things that they agree on, such as schools and pediatricians and, you know, friends that would be appropriate for the children. But as we've seen during COVID, particularly, they may have very varying views on 
such very important issues as vaccines. They may differ as to whether to medicate their children if a child has ADHD or whether the child should go to a specialized school, whether the child should be in therapy or not in therapy. You know, there are basics, but then there are these controversial topics that I think couples don't necessarily agree on. And that's where it gets tricky, because if they can't agree on those topics, these very important decisions, then one of them has to make a decision as to those those issues. And we saw that, as I said, in COVID, where Parents didn't agree on whether to vaccinate their children. They didn't even agree as to whether they should vaccinate themselves in in many cases. And they brought these issues to the court. And the court is not in a position to make those decisions for the children. These aren't the court's children. They have the authority to decide which parent is in the better position to make that decision. And that's what was happening. The court would decide which parent should make the decision. And frankly, it was usually the parent who was in agreement with the pediatrician. No big surprise. You know, parents would call us and they would say, well, what do we do? I would say, call the pediatrician. This is the person that you and your spouse both agreed was going to treat your child. So why would this be now a controversial topic? Call the pediatrician who you both agreed on, ask the pediatrician his or her recommendation. And likely that's the best person to follow. Well, it seems like that's an easy decision, Seth. Did the court? The courts love those kinds of things, right? Making it nice and simple for you. Oh, yeah, that's you. You've learned a lot in our podcast, Pete. The courts are <laughs> nice and simple, and the judges do they they actually do crazy things like follow the law. You know, um, shocking. I know. So, no. To your your point on the vaccines is judges don't always follow the law. Judges have inherent bias. They have bias that is obvious and. The cost of litigation when you get a bad ruling at a trial level to appeal is just astronomical. And so then you have to decide whether or not you're really going to take that up to the appellate court, even though I can tell them it is a 95% winning chance you're going to win, but you got to go hire an appellate lawyer to do it. And then it's like, well, how much is this really worth the financial outlay just for it to get sent back to the court to try to make a different decision? Well, I think that's a really great question, though, Seth, because this is we're talking. Let's take the vaccine, for example. Right. That is an, an in, uh, uh, it, it feels to me like that is a decision that many people held very, very strong opinions, strong enough opinions that might determine a much higher pain threshold in terms of what they're willing to pay to be right in the courts. Right. And let's be clear about vaccines. It's all about mitigating risk. That's what vaccines do. We all know that you can be vaccinated. You can still get COVID. We hope that it won't be as severe or as long, right? So that is the medical decision that you're making. And how much money do you want to spend to mitigate that risk? And what, if anything, has happened if your child already had COVID once and so maybe has some antibodies and how does that work and versus not? And so it can get very nuanced in in the literature And to Lisa's point, well, you agreed on this pediatrician, but now there's all this other stuff in the news that might not be accurate, and you're listening to that and not the pediatrician, and maybe that's what the judge is listening to as well. You know, I think that the the issue for most of our clients is that when it comes to their children, they're not going to look at the dollars and cents. 
they're going to make a decision that is in the best interest of their children. And it's not as if you're deciding whether you're going to mitigate the risk of losing a million dollars, right? This may, and, and in COVID particularly, this may be a life and death type of situation. You know, now we have polio possibly coming out and we had measles prior to this. And so I, I think that this is a, a very important topic, just as people who have children who have dyslexia or people who have children who have ADHD, they may disagree on whether the child should go to a particular school or they may disagree on whether the child should be medicated. These are all really important issues. And I think for our clients particularly, these are not issues that they're going to put a dollar value on. Now, maybe that's because they're fortunate enough not to have to be able to be in that position of worrying about the dollar value. And and that may be the particular clientele that we have, frankly. But I think that most parents will go to the end of the earth, essentially, to do what is right for their children. And the parents who believed that vaccines were not the right way to go, they were willing to go to the end of the earth, too. And you're right that the appellate division is a long road and it's an expensive road. But for the most part, the judges that were before I believe that they actually acted reasonably and sensibly and that they they really worked hard during COVID to do what was reasonable and sensible in all in all the cases. I really do believe that they worked through very tough times. Back to your point, though, Pete, is maybe when they were married, they agreed on all this stuff like medical stuff was never an issue. And here it is two years later. And now it's an issue. So. There's a couple things I think people go through when they get divorced and there is a sense of liberation. Like, I am out of this. I I don't have to placate that person anymore. I have this new sense of freedom. That I was this person when I was with, with my former spouse, but now I'm more of who I am and who I want to be? That's correct. Okay. I am I am finding who I am, and that is not the person that I was when I was married. I lost myself when I was married. So I was making decisions because I felt bullied or it was just easier to say yes. Or she totally ran roughshod over me over all the kid stuff. I could never do anything right. So she handled all the vaccinations and all the kid stuff. I didn't really agree, but it wasn't worth the fight for me because I was trying to keep my marriage and I was trying to, you know, pick my battles. Now we're divorced. I can pick every battle I want. And I may be fortunate enough to be able to afford to pick all the battles. Yeah, exactly. But even if you're not, here's what happens, right? Giving a child medication is a joint parental responsibility decision in Florida. Check your local jurisdiction, right? Going, getting ADHD medication for your child, that should be a joint decision. But the problem is the default is the child isn't getting the medication. So if someone says no, That's the default. You can't just start giving the medication, okay? So now you get into this type of fight. And sometimes what people, and and in my experience, it's more been the fathers than the mothers, is they don't want their kid labeled. I don't want that diagnosis. We're not going to label my kid. He's fine. Or if you label him, then he's going to be treated different. There's all these reasons why they don't want the labeling, where the other parent might say, I don't care about the label. The label gets us access to care. 
And maybe it opens the door to therapy that we don't have to pay for. Maybe it opens the door for medication. But now you have this struggle and courts are not set up to solve these disputes, right? Um, And that's where it gets very expensive very quick. And you have to go in and then you get the medical experts to say why they need it. And the court can't say, give them the medication in Florida. The court can say, I think the parent not allowing the medication is acting detrimental to this child. And therefore, the other parent has decision making. Well, now you got a huge imbalance of power. Okay, so what happens in that case? That's what that's what I'm I'm really interested in in this point is how it gets decided that one parent has full decision making power and. What about when those cases when the parent had full decision-making power leading up to COVID, let's say, and now has that authority over a parent who suddenly believes quite strongly that that's not the way to do it? And, and what does the court think about all of this? So those are two different questions. So let's start with, with the first question. How does the court determine which parent is in the better position? And when I say in the better position, it is the parent that is going to act in the children's best interest as opposed to their own interest? Who's going to be able to put the children's best interest in front of their own interest? That's one of the things that the court looks at. Now, what will they look at? They'll look at who is the parent who would normally make these decisions routinely. So if for, you know, 10 years, it was dad who was making the decision, who was dad who was taking the child to the pediatrician. It was dad who found the pediatrician. It was dad who would, you know, be signing the records all the time. Maybe it's going to be dad who makes the decision. I mean, that is certainly one of the things that the court will look at. Uh, I think the other thing, and what's very important, is which parent is the parent who is going to be more apt to consider the other parent's opinion. In other words, have a meaningful consultation with the other parent. Take in the information that the other parent has, even if you disagree with it, consider it, and then come to a decision. That's very important to the court. Lisa, how is that measured? How do you measure a meaningful conversation? So I think that, look, now we're in the world of emails and text messages, right? And the court will look at all of those emails and text messages. And the question is, is someone saying, hey, I'm just doing this and I don't really care about your opinion and you are just, you're stupid, okay? You're a moron, okay? Or is this a person who is saying, okay, I hear what you're saying. Let's go back to the doctor and let's present your views about it. And let's let's have a meaningful dialogue about it. I'm not dismissing what you have to say. And then let's come to a decision. Pete. Yeah. Do you have any idea how this actually happens in practicality if both of those people currently have counsel? <laughs> please, please do tell. Okay. This is what happens more often than you would imagine. I get a phone call from a client, hypothetically, and they say he is refusing to do X, and in this case, vaccinations. How do I respond? And I ghostwrite the response because I know it's going to be used in court, right? And I have them use their own words, but I totally will edit it, okay? And... I uh, especially with difficult. You're talking about like writing like a text or an email. You're yeah, helping. Your I will help write them write a text response. and an email because 
I want to make sure that one, we're trying to solve the problem and I can better communicate what she's trying to say in this hypothetical than she can. And I use what I call, and people have heard this, the Biff method, brief, informative, friendly, and firm. You don't go on and on and on, okay? And then we craft it. It's perfect. She sends it. And now he's got a great lawyer named Lisa. And then he calls Lisa and says, how do I respond? So really, the lawyers are now communicating back and forth through their clients. Attorney puppet theater. So, you know, (laughs) I I disagree with that to some degree. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I think that people do have their own views about it. And our clients, frankly, will write their emails, okay? And and sometimes to their detriment, they will write their emails, okay? Oh, I get the calls after they've been scolded in court yes. about their emails. That's okay. when it happens. Yes. It's not right at the beginning. I'm with you, Lisa. <laughs> so so they, will, they will write their emails. But many of them, you know, this is a divorce, and it's a very stressful time for people. And if it's about custody or these types of issues, they're going to write their own emails because they can't wait to send the email, to have the conversation with us. So I, I don't see that the way that you see it. I will write a letter. Don't get me wrong. I'll write a letter all day long if I have to, to the other attorney. Or this morning I was on the phone with an attorney having a conversation at eight o'clock in the morning about an issue. And I said, we're just going to have to file a motion. But I, I think that we, we have a lot of professionals who are our clients. They really believe strongly in some of their convictions. They do actually want to meaningfully consult with their their spouse. And if they don't, you're right. We will teach them, okay, that that is the right thing to do, okay? Because there's no question, okay, that that is the right thing to do. I'm not telling you that everybody comes in and says, oh, I want to meaningfully consult with my, my ex-spouse or to be or my ex-spouse. That's not what I'm saying. But we explained to them that the appellate division is looks at that, the trial court looks at that, that that is important, and it takes on a life of its own. You know, it's, it's always like the parent who was not involved with, with their children necessarily during the marriage because maybe the other spouse was doing all of that day-to-day stuff. All of a sudden, that parent becomes involved. And you know what? They start to like it because they're actually getting attention from the children and the children are loving it and it, it builds on itself. And so I, I think people can be taught, okay, that they need to meaningfully consult. Now, after they meaningfully consult and it doesn't work, then somebody has to make a decision. And in a medical situation, when they don't agree to Seth's point, when they don't agree, the doctor is not going to make the decision, okay? They're not getting involved. Their hands are off and nothing is happening. And that is the problem. And even in a joint legal custody situation, and this is goes to your question, Pete, when there's a joint legal custody situation and now there's a problem, what do we have to do to show to change it? Well, there's a substantial change in circumstances, perhaps, or we're in a situation where it's just not in the best interest of the children anymore to have joint legal custody. Um, in terms of their parents. And so then one of the parents has essentially right for all the health care and makes those decisions. Or it was, you know, during COVID, sometimes we would put in motions to the extent of getting the vaccination. Yeah, you always want to try to limit the decision making as much as you can. A, a narrow 
well-founded, targeted motion has a higher likelihood of success than all healthcare decisions. Particularly if there's an emergency. And the pandemic was an emergency. Almost every day there was an emergency. Sure. Okay. All right. That that I I guess that makes sense to me. Just that you know, right when we started the show, Seth, right before we pushed record, we started talking about this issue, and you said something that really stuck out to me, which is, yeah, the court hated that that there was one parent who had authority to make a, a decision related to the vaccine, and you were in in court related to this. What was that story then? How did that get triggered? So so it was the fact that the court, so the courts in New York have definitely made decisions that are, in my mind, okay, more pro-vaccine. And when a parent did not follow the recommendations of the pediatrician, and there are people dying every day during COVID, the courts were not going to be apt to give the other parent who was against the vaccine the legal decision not to make make you know the, give the vaccine and that's what the court really did not like okay is the parent who was so resistant to giving the vaccine when vaccines we've given vaccines you know polio um you know tb measles i mean vaccines have happened all through these there's years. all right. sorts of things <laughs> right. but you know Pete we've talked about this is i can be in courtroom a and I'm going to get a different decision than courtroom B on the same set of facts. So it all kind of just plays out. But I think the real thing to understand here is when you're married, ultimately a decision gets made and you go about your life. When you're divorced, it's much harder because there's no real reason to compromise on an issue like this. If you feel strongly, you're not living in the same house. You're, 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 you, your finances aren't, aren't tied together. Maybe there's child support going back and forth or alimony. But you're, you're really living separate lives, but you have a kid in common. And so now it is much harder to put your feelings aside, to put your ego aside, just to say it's not worth the conflict. So I am always talking to clients when they call me about an issue. How big of an issue is this for you? You know what I'm going to tell you. Here's the law. Here's what I think the, the information you're giving me. I can file a motion. We can do discovery. We can set it for a hearing. We can go in front of a judge. We can go through that whole rigmarole. Or we can try to resolve this. And if we don't get it resolved to your satisfaction, even if I'm telling you this could be a winner in court, do you want to spend the money, time, and effort, and brain power, and emotional effort to fight this battle? And some of the answers are yes. And some of them are no, and some of them are no, 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 no. I'm tired of saying no, yes. Even though out of all the no's, this is the smallest one, right? Because they've just, it's the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's that type of emotional response. It's that type of feeling like you're always the one giving in that gets resentment in a relationship that is already strained because you're divorced and you don't agree. And there's no real reason from a personality, interpersonal connection to try to compromise. It's such an interesting uh, sort of uh, exploration of human behavior just that happens when, you know, relationships fall apart. Back to school season's almost over. 
Seth, I I can't believe it, but my kids, even my kids in the way delayed state of Oregon are almost going back to school. Now, you know, as well as I do, that going back to school is a rough time when you are co-parenting. And it's especially true when alcohol and child safety is a concern. That's why, as everyone knows here on The Toaster, our mission includes helping divorced parents truly save their relationships. And being a co-parent is difficult enough when you're not living under the same roof and you add in alcoholism or an allegation of alcoholism and it's a problem. And that's why we've partnered with Soberlink to help offer resources to help you navigate this upcoming back to school season. So what is Soberlink? Soberlink is remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help prove sobriety in custody cases. The system that you're going to get is it includes a a high-tech breathalyzer device that includes facial recognition and allows you to receive real-time updates from monitored co-parents anytime, anywhere, allowing for swift intervention for improved child safety. They have helped hundreds of thousands of people to document proof of sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. Soberlink is currently offering some free back-to-school and divorce packets that include questions and answers with top divorce attorneys, back-to-school checklists, communication tips, and a whole lot more. Request your free packet today at Soberlink.com slash toaster. I want to use this opportunity, Lisa, to have you talk a little bit about legal matters and specifically, you know, the subtitle, Understanding Mental Health Issues as They Apply to Divorce and Child Custody. One, how did you end up feeling like this was the platform in psychology today? I mean, it, it, how was that the right mix for you to write about these issues related to law and divorce? First of all, we see so much mental health in divorce and when people come to us and we were seeing it more. We certainly saw it a lot during COVID, but we saw it before COVID. You know, people who um, would come to me and in the middle of the case, I would find out something that had gone on that they should have recognized early on. So, for example, we'd going up in the elevator for trial. And I always remember this. And um, and I would say something and they would say, yeah, she used to cut herself all the time. And she was in a site, you know, in, 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 um, a hospital for that. And the let, when she had broke up with her boyfriend before we got married, she tried to commit suicide. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me any of this before? And by the way, didn't the lights go on before you got married? Yeah. It's hard to tell a client that when you're walking into trial though. <laughs> yeah. But that's the time they hear it from me if yeah, they're telling right. it to me. Right. Okay. I'm like literally this, you know, the five minute elevator ride up and sure enough during the case or during the trial, something comes up and it comes out and you know, it look, that's the last time that you usually hear it, but somewhere mid mid, time when you're representing people, very often you learn about these emotional issues that occurred. And I think that although I'm not a psychologist, not a therapist, I'm not licensed at all in that area, there are certain telltale signs. Somebody comes into your room and they're speaking really, really, really rapidly. 
okay, super rapidly, or they're waking up at 5.30 in the morning calling you, and then it's 4.30 in the morning, and then it's 3.30 in the morning, and you're getting text messages all night, and then they don't speak to you at all. And I mean, there there might be some manic behavior here, and you have to recognize it. Or oh, I someone- thought you were just describing my last weekend there. <laughs> <laughs> I got distracted. Sorry about that. <laughs> so there, there, there are certainly, I think we see it a lot. Um, you know, so many people come to me and they say they're, they're married to a narcissist. Okay, that's a common issue. So many people come in and they are married to people who have addiction issues. And along with addiction issues, very often are depression issues, anxiety. I mean, we, we see this. And we work very closely and collaboratively with people's therapists so that we can get through a lot of these issues. Um, and, and so it was a natural platform, I thought. And, and people did relate to it, for sure. I'm sure of it, just given the nature of the kinds of conversations we've uh, hosted on this very show. So many of them are just reminders of just how our brains are working as individual organisms that it's complicated. And I imagine exacerbated by the stress, anxiety, fear, uncertainty, doubt that comes with the divorce process. Gets back to the opening question was, you know, how are we changing when we go through the divorce process in some ways maybe we would never have expected? Right. And I, I, I think that mental health is definitely one of the things that, that comes up. People become more stressed, more anxious. Um, you know, they may be very disappointed in their marriages because there was adultery or they um, were abused in some way. Um, we see a lot of financial abuse in, in our cases, um, even from the breadwinner who is financially abused um, you know, as you know, or you may know, I'm very much involved in, in the issue of financial abuse. Um, and I'm vice president of the board of Savvy Ladies, which deals with, um, women and empowering them financially in terms of financial literacy. So there's, I mean, so much of this is part of what we do every day. And part of that, Pete, right? If you have someone in that scenario that Lisa's just described, that the one that is being abused. When they get divorced, yeah, they're going to be a different person. If they do the hard work and figure out what they did to stay in that relationship, they're going to do the hard work and they're going to be a different person. So they're not in that relationship again. So to your hypothetical that you gave earlier about, oh, we all agreed on kind of our politics and now like she's way on the other side of the political spectrum and she's dating or getting married to these guys that are convicted felons. It just seems so different. That might be a sign of not having anything to do with the divorce. Maybe there's a mental illness thing that creeps in at your 40s, right? But you're no longer living in the house. So you you have so much less information than you did when you were living with that person. And it's very easy to take that information and fill in the gaps that we don't have with all negativity, right? Because when you don't know, you always assume the worst. That's human nature. So part of that also happens. You have substantially less information with someone that's not communicating with you. Isn't, you know, I mean, we got people that are, have to talk to each other on these apps and check them once a day. I mean, that's not how you communicate with your wife. So even just the way that you do it, and some people are like, I can't, freaking talking my phone gets blown up like 40 50 messages a day we're like okay let's get to the app just check it once a day respond accordingly 
right? So there's all these different things to answer that question. There isn't a simple answer. It's not like this is the thing. There's people feel liberated. They do the hard work. Some people are just like, you kidding me? Yeah. I've got all this, you know, I, I want to show up at parents night with the 20 year old, you know, even though I'm 50, just to piss off my former spouse. Like people do that. It's also, they are now working with attorneys. They're working with therapists. They're working with accounting firms. They are much more knowledgeable usually than they were um, when they, when their marriage first started. And they have learned through experience, but they've also changed. Their group, who they were listening to, has changed. I mean, I don't believe that I'm the same person who went through my divorce, okay? And I'm now remarried, you know, almost 25 years. I'm not that person that I was at 24 years old when I got married the first time around. And I changed through my divorce, I, I became more educated. I went to law school. I, you know, I, I. And Pete, that's what most people do when they get divorced. They just go straight go to, to law, law school. school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean. That's what if, they should do. That's what they should do. It's either that or medical school. You right. Know. One or the other. <laughs> or, they become, or they become a therapist. therapist. Yeah, there you exactly. go. There you go. I feel program. like we're playing like uh survey says, like, uh, yeah, family feud style. Uh, but you do change, you know, yeah. but I, I'll never forget. Uh, I'm going to share a, a, just a very funny story. I remember when I was going through my divorce and my ex-husband was trying to do everything to, you know, basically gaslight me. And one day he shut off all the lights and I'm sure he never thought that I would ha- understand what a circuit breaker was. And sure enough, I made my way down and I turned back all the lights and I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't think I know what a circuit breaker is, but I know exactly what it is. And that became a standard joke, actually, because somehow I learned that. And so there are all sorts of things that you learn as you're going through a divorce. You learn that you should look at your financial statements, that you should look at your tax returns, that you should open the mail, that you you can't depend on someone else all the time. And so there's there's a whole base of knowledge that I think people gain when they go through this situation. And when you start doing that stuff, as simple as it sounds, like, yep, I learned about a circuit breaker. Okay. You get confidence. I can handle that. And, you know, I've had clients tell me, like, being divorced is great. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, he moved out of the house and I've gotten so many things fixed around this house that he kept saying he was going to get done and wouldn't do because I went online, I did a Google search, I found a guy, I read the reviews, and a handyman came over and fixed everything in a in a half day, and I paid $237, right? And like, the sink had been leaking for three years. And then it's like, I can handle the maintenance on the house. I thought I was all worried about how I was going to do it. And I realized I had the best tool ever, a telephone. And I yeah, called right. somebody, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. So, it, so it, it changes people in a, in a good way, in a way that like, I can be more self-sufficient. I don't have to rely on anybody else. I can even go to law school. 
I just love that you're telling a story about your uh, former spouse gaslighting you by turning the lights off. And literally, that's part of the plot of the movie Gaslight in 1944. Had he just seen the movie and got really excited about it? Or like, step number one, watch the movie Gaslight, everybody. If you learn nothing else, you'll know if you're being gaslit if you just watch this movie. That's all I'm saying. This is great. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you for being here, for being a part of the show. We appreciate your wisdom. I hope people are getting something out of this conversation. I, I think a lot of a lot of great lessons buried in here about how people change, behavior change, and how you navigate those changes going through the divorce process. Seth, you're a, you're a rock star, as always. I don't even know what to say to you. Well, are you feeling okay? I got a compliment. I know. I know. Something. There's must, I must be, or maybe I just watched the movie Gaslight. We'll see. Uh, Lisa, where do you want people to find you? So they can go to lisaziderman.com or they can actually email me at lz at mzw-law.com. Fantastic. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here on behalf of Lisa Ziderman and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney. I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, how to split a toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.